we do know that as, as Christians, we are commanded to take the, the gospel to those that are in the world, to those that are around us, whether it is across the world or across the, uh, across the street to our neighbors. And no matter what, that is a challenging thing to do. And so we talk about evangelism, which literally means, uh, you know, gospelism, good newsism. We're taking this good news that sinners like me, like you, can be saved because of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. That he came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for sinners, he rose again, intercedes for us, and that salvation is not a matter of uh, living a good, perfect life from here on out. Uh, that ship has already sailed, we've already come into this world as sinners, and we, if we look at our life, we sin all the time and every day. So we're not going to get there by good works, but Scripture tells us that's not how salvation actually happens. It comes by turning to Jesus Christ, the Lord, the God-man, as the one that has already accomplished what is needed. He's paid the price in full. And so salvation is by grace alone, and it's received just by faith alone, by trusting in him. But it is a challenging thing to present the gospel, uh, to, uh, to explain it in a compelling way, uh, even to people that... Um, share a lot of our presuppositions, a lot of our values, even when people have grown up uh, in a church. You could be going to Sunday school and everything your entire life and know all these facts, but it is still difficult bringing the gospel because there is that sinful part of our hearts uh, until Jesus changes us that, that resists and doesn't want that. So as challenging as it is, uh, even with, um, for any of us or our family members or those that are in the church, how much more is it a challenge to bring the gospel message uh, to people that don't even have the same background, that don't even have uh, the same foundational beliefs, and many in the world today that we are living in uh, that have beliefs that are very contrary to what Scripture actually lays out. It's even more of a challenge. And that's where, as we think about uh, caring about the lost, caring about evangelism, uh, in these next three weeks in this mini-series that we're doing on Paul in Athens, we're going to be looking at, uh, in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, where the Apostle Paul, this is after the time of Christ has, has died, he's risen from the dead, he's converted Paul. Paul turned from being a persecutor of Christians to now he's an apostle, and he loves Jesus so much and is obeying him that he's uh, risking his life, enduring beatings, enduring suffering to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to people around the world. And he's on his second missionary journey here, traveling around, telling people about Christ, helping people to, to come to know salvation in Christ, starting you know, churches in different uh, cities. Churches are the believers, uh, the group of believers that come together. It's not a building. And at this point, he goes to Athens. And Athens, major city in Greece, it's maybe, yeah, 400-some years past its, its golden age, uh, but it's the city that uh, is the you know, home of philosophy, Socrates, uh, Plato, Aristotle, uh, home of great sculptures, works of art, high culture, the birthplace of democracy, all these different things. But they are in love with idols, false worldviews, false philosophies, and false gods. And as we look at Paul in, uh, in these verses, 
uh, we're going to, I think, hopefully learn a lot about ways that we can take the gospel message of Jesus Christ into a world around us that is difficult, that is uh, more like living in uh, Athens or a place where your neighbors, your coworkers, do not share many of your same beliefs and are not on the same page, uh, oftentimes not even in the same book. And how can we learn from Paul to have a heart for evangelism and also to do this uh, wisely? So, we are going to, uh, let's read this first part, Acts 17, 16 through 21. We'll hit that for today. As I said, this is going to be a three-part series. And then we're going to come back and we're going to work through this bit by bit. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the part that we're going to look at for today. And... Think about, uh, the, it talks about he was in the marketplace, it talks about the Areopagus. Now, and this is part of what kind of stimulated me to, to want to do this, but uh, this summer, Hope and I uh, celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, and as part of that, we went to Greece for a while. And a part of that, we were touring around and seeing a lot of the, the biblical sites, and uh, one place that we went to was Athens. So this is in the title here, the slide, the picture that I took from Athens in the, the marketplace, the Agora. So I also took some videos. Uh, so I've kind of put them together and have a little video presentation so you can kind of see uh, at least the, the ruins now, uh, but the place that Paul was actually walking and he was conversing with people in this Agora, which is, which is the marketplace. And notice we also talked about the, the Areopagus and uh, you'll see that in this video as well. So here, this whole area is the, the Agora. I'm at one side looking across to that temple that's in the background. And the Agora is also, it means marketplace. That's literally what it means. So in Acts when it says the marketplace, it is talking about the Agora. And this is the place where it is. And it was this large uh, area. Um, there's a lot of space there. If you've heard of the word agoraphobia, it means fear of crowds or wide open spaces. And it comes from the Agora, the marketplace. If people had a, a fear of going to the marketplace. So back in the day, this would be filled with all kinds of shops, people selling 
uh, crafts, all kinds of different merchandise. You could find basically anything you wanted uh, in the Agora. So it was very crowded, people coming there. Also filled with a lot of idolatry, idols. This is a temple to Hephaestus. He's the, the Greek god of volcano fire, uh, but also the uh, god of blacksmiths, artisans, craftsmen, uh, carpenters. So it made sense they had a temple there. Looking from the temple across, you see a hill on the other side, and this is the Acropolis. Literally means high city. And that's where the Parthenon is located up there. It's big, uh, the biggest you know, temple. Here you can see a diorama depicting what this would have uh, looked like around the time that Paul was there or a little bit before then. We've been crowded with people, lots to talk to. This is a, that there that you just saw was an altar to Zeus. And so there would be uh, worship of these, you know, false gods happening at the same time. And one thing I noticed when I was looking across it, I noticed up in the distance, there was another hill, this kind of rocky hill, and I noticed there were people standing on this hill. And I, all of a sudden I, it dawned on me and I realized, I think I know what that is. And later I was able to confirm uh, what this hill is. And this hill is what is called the, the Areopagus. Uh, which literally means the hill of Ares or Mars Hill. And so in the book of Acts, when we see here, it talks about that uh, they took Paul you know, from the Agora, the marketplace, and the, the Areopagus, that really that's where the, the Areopagus, as far as the hill, actually, actually is. And so it was just uh, realizing that when, the, when we read the Bible, it's, it's real things in real places, it's not something that takes place in Narnia or Mordor or some fantasy land. These were things that happened in a time and place that were on this earth. That you can walk where, where Paul walked, where Jesus walked. These are literal things that actually, that actually happened. Um, mentioned uh, the uh, Areopagus. Uh, it's called that, or, or the Hill of Ares, because according to Greek mythology, uh, that uh, Ares had killed uh, Neptune's son, and so the other gods put him on trial for murder, and they held this on, on that rock that was there. And so later on, there was a council, a city council, that started to meet there as well. And, uh, of course, the Ares, also known as uh, Mars, so he's got a hill named after him, uh, got a planet named after him, got a candy bar named after him. <laughs> when I was a kid... Uh, my dad once told me, I think it was about 10, I think it was fifth grade, uh, told me that, yeah, you, you ever notice that every candy bar is named after something in space? I'm like, really? Yeah, he said, you know, Milky Way bars, you got Mars bars. He said, there's a Snickers galaxy. And we went to, I went to school, and we're, having, we're learning about astronomy, and they're talking about different things, and I raised my hand and told the teacher and everyone, you know, there's a Snickers galaxy and the teacher really didn't say anything. Probably thought, oh, okay, he's trying to be funny or a wise guy. Uh, truth, gullible. <laughs> That's what was happening. So, yeah, thanks, Dad. <laughs> so, let's uh, go into this. We're going to walk through it. I want to hit on two kind of big themes in this so far. And the first really deals with idolatry. 
he notices, Paul notices the city is full of these idols. The Athenians were obsessed with false gods. You know, we see Ares, Hephaestus, uh, there were a lot of these false gods. So let's, let's walk through this passage again. Verse uh, 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, Okay, so he is in Athens. Some of his other companions, they're going to make their way there. Uh, Paul had come from uh, Berea, uh, but he's waiting for them. And he didn't just decide, well, I'm waiting, so I'm going to go to a hotel and uh, just uh, kick back for a while or spin his gears. He's like, I'm going to use my time here to be engaging people about Jesus Christ, uh, to be telling them about Christ. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, It says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's in this city, and it is chock full of idols. Uh, Now, you know, Athens uh, had converted to, you know, Christianity later on. There's ruins there, but most of the idols are gone. Uh, There's some that are still around or in museums. But it said that in Athens, like back in the day, there were so many of these uh, statues uh, to false gods, to, to Hermes and, and others, uh, that there may have been as many as three idols for every person that actually lived in Athens. So it was all over the place throughout the city. So Paul's there, and he had come to know the true God, the true God that, uh, that came down and died on the cross for him and loved him. And he's seeing people going after these false gods. And it says that his spirit within him is, is provoked. That uh, he is just, uh, he's upset by the things that he is seeing. I think just some applications just right off the bat. That we need to see the, the desperate spiritual need of the people that are around us. That the people around us that don't know Jesus Christ are, are following after things that are hurtful to them, that are not bringing glory to the true God, that they are trapped and captivated in these, these false systems. And I think too often we, we're so used to it uh, that our, our spirits are not provoked in a way that we um, are moved to care about them. We also see with all of these idols that they have, the truth that when people reject God, the true God, they don't just fill it with nothing. There's not just a vacuum. They will always try to fill that void with something else. And so these people, they filled it with uh, these, these false gods that they would worship. And the same thing is true today. It may not be the same kind of false gods, but people will fill it with something else. And if you are not filling your heart with the love of Jesus Christ, the love of the true God, you're going to put something else in there. I know there's people that claim to be religious nuns, but the truth is, I mean, that they, they have no religion. But the truth, there's something that they're worshiping above everything else. There's something that they are living for, something that is top spot in their heart. And it may be a thing, it may be a cause, it may be a hobby, who knows, but there's something that they're going to put in there to try and fill that void that God is supposed to be filling in our hearts and our lives. So his heart, his spirit, Paul, was provoked. Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
So Paul, he went to wherever they were. So in this verse, we see that he's going to the Jews, and they would meet at the synagogues, and there were some devout people that cared about God, and he would meet with them, and he would try to reason with them. And it doesn't go into detail here how he did that. It would have been probably different than how he is going to uh, give a message to the Greeks that we're going to see uh, in the verses to come and we'll look at next week. Because uh, he's going to tailor things to that audience. You can see in the book of Acts things that he would proclaim. Probably something very similar to what we see recorded in the book of Hebrews. Uh, whether that was written by Paul or not, probably something very similar to a message that Paul would have taken to uh, the people that knew the Old Testament, the, the Jews, informing them that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament and everything that was in it. So he went to the synagogues to try and reason and convince the Jews. And it says that he went to also, uh, it says, and in the marketplace, that's the word agora, and that's what we had in the video and in these pictures. And it says every day, so not just, he didn't just do it once, he was doing this consistently uh, with those who happened to be there. So he's looking for anyone he can, that he can talk to about Christ, that he can try to bring this message to. And he goes there because he knows there's a lot of people there. And also people would gather there, and it was common to have discussions, to, uh, to, to meet people. This is kind of the, the gathering place of all things. So he was bringing uh, Christianity into this agora, this marketplace. And therefore, in, these, uh, in this uh, section of Acts, we can think, how, what can we learn about bringing God into uh, the marketplace of the world today? There's not necessarily, you know, Walmart or Sam's Club, uh, but just where people are in this, uh, it, uh, the, into our society, into our world, bringing Jesus Christ to them and doing it strategically. And we're going to see how Paul does it. Uh, I think there's not just one way to do it. There can be different approaches, but there's a lot that we're going to learn from Paul. But we see here also it says he reasoned with them. His spirit is provoked, but he reasoned with them. He didn't rage at them. The big difference. And there's some people that are apathetic to the idolatry and the sin in the world around us, and that's not healthy. But also the other extreme is not healthy either. Where we decide we're just going to rage at the world. And that is not going to be the, the winsome approach that we need to implore and invite people to Jesus Christ. But instead, he says, it says that he reasoned with them. He tried to give them reasons. He um, tried to uh, convince them. And I don't think it was always just, uh, we think reason, it's not always just, here's the intellectual reasons. Uh, but we're trying to reach people's hearts. We're trying to implore them to come to Christ. And that might be apologetics worldview. That might be something that we use that helps a lot of people. Having people hear your testimony can be a powerful way for you to reason with them, to show what impact and change Jesus Christ has made in your life and the before and the after and the emptiness and the sin that you were in and how Jesus loved you while you were still a sinner and how he saved you and you came to embrace him. There's different ways that God can use each of us and some of us have different strengths and different styles that we can be used in people's lives. But to, to reason, not to rage at them, with that in mind, uh, there was a, uh, Pastor Zach this week posted a quote from Erwin Lutzer's book, The Church in Babylon, that really fits well with this. 
Uh, Erwin Lutzer writes, Yes, we may have righteous anger as we see our culture destroyed, but if our anger spills over into our Christian witness, it only fuels the stereotype that the world already has of us. Yes, we are called to expose the sins of the world, but to do so with redemption, in humility and compassion, and yes, with courage and tears. It's the posture, that's the hard approach that we need to have as we bring Jesus Christ into the, the marketplace of the world that's around us. In verse 18, it says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. I think a moment here, and we're not going to turn this into philosophy class, uh, but it does mention these two different uh, types of philosophers. And one was the Epicureans, and to do just a quick summary of their beliefs, the Epicureans, um, you know, if they believed that the, there were the gods, okay, but maybe the gods made the world, but they weren't involved in life on a day-to-day -day basis. They really kind of didn't matter. And so basically they functioned and lived as basically as if they were atheists. So the Epicureans, uh, basically functional atheists, at least the gods didn't really matter in life. They weren't a part of things. They believed everything basically happens by chance. Uh, just random things happen. Life is what it is. Um, it's the, the roll of the dice. Things happen by chance. Death is the end of it. So the goal, they said, was to seek pleasure. Seek your happiness in this life. Find the pleasure that you can. Now, I bet there's probably not many people who that would say, I'm an Epicurean, and I follow you know, the, that school of philosophy. But think how much this is a worldview of so many people that are around us. That this world happens by chance. We don't think about God too much. Um, you know, things happen. Things are accidental. Grab the good while you can. Get the pleasure that you can and live for your happiness in this life now because this is all there is. You only live once, YOLO, and grab your pleasure. So that's the Epicureans. And we live amongst a lot of people that have similar philosophies today. It also mentions the Stoics. You know, these are different worldviews. Uh, different ways of thinking about the world, and this is gonna, they're going to shape everything else. So these people are coming from very different backgrounds. The Stoics, maybe you hear people you know, talk about Stoicism. Somebody's very serious and they're unmoved. It comes from the ancient Stoics. And so the Stoics, well, their belief in God was basically a pantheism, kind of everything is God. And so if that's the case, then kind of the opposite of chance, everything happens by fate. Everything is, is, is destiny, but an impersonal destiny because if everything is God, then God is not really a person or anything like that. Uh, just kind of a world force and what's going to happen is going to happen. So they said the best that you can do is have a stiff upper lip and just endure life, not be moved by things and not be emotional and that's where stoicism comes from. Their view of self-mastery, I'm not going to be moved by anything. Being detached from the things in this world. And some people, they take that approach to life. That life is, is terrible, what's going to happen happens, but just try to not let it move you and that's the best you can do. These are both pretty empty. If this is the best hope for you, and I said you have to choose between one of these, grab your happiness now because that's all there is, or realize what's going to happen is happening and just grit and bear it and try not to let it bother you. These are both very hopeless worldviews. 
And then how the Christian worldview, the message of the Bible, the gospel, is so different from this. That there is a God that is involved in life, that cares, that cares about you, that cares about you personally enough that God died for you so that you can be saved. And that God is working on your heart now. If you're hearing this, I believe God is working on your heart and trying to draw you to him. That he, I pray that he is convicting you. Uh, not to make you feel guilty, but so that you turn to him and that you come to him. Because he cares about you personally. He loves you personally. We have a personal God that cares about people individually. And yeah, God is in control, but our choices matter. And you know what? The ultimate happiness is not living for this life now. Uh, there's a lot we can enjoy and have joy in this life, especially if it's joy in God. But the life to come in eternity is where the real payoff is. And that's the ultimate thing. And the ultimate treasure is having a relationship with God, having a relationship with Jesus Christ, making him your treasure. Because if you have him as your treasure, that's going to last forever. That's going to be more than anything else possibly could. So you have these Stoic philosophers, and it says here, they said, what does this babbler wish to say? The word for babbler is literally seed picker which that seems kind of weird. It's, we think babbler, you know, that somebody has just, you know, diarrhea of the mouth. Uh, sorry for that image. Uh, <laughs> but seed picker, uh, the, I guess the word meant, it was used of people that, like a bird, that would pick up little, a little seed here, a bit of, uh, you know, twig or whatever, just gathering whatever it was. And so basically they're saying, you don't have a coherent philosophy like we have. You're just picking up little bits and from here and there. You don't really know what you're talking about. You're like a bird that doesn't even know what to do with these things. So, uh, but at the same time, um, others said uh, with the, he's preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Um, but he was, at least he was engaging with them. And some were dismissing him, but others he was getting their interest. Before we move on, just want to talk about idolatry a little bit. Because, like Paul, we are among a people whose hearts are captivated by idols. That's the truth. Maybe not the same kind of idols, you know, some statue of some false god. Although, if you go around the world, there are lots of people that literally worship statues of false gods. So don't think that's not a thing. That still is. But most of the idols that we Americans have are more sophisticated. You know, the uh, crafted pieces of metal are not, uh, you know, shaped into gods. They might be in our garage. They might be, you know, in the dock. They may be in the trophy case, the things that we live for. Or that image that we worship might be our self-image, what we see in the mirror, uh, just our, our physical appearance, our, our social media appearance, our just the way people think of us, our own pride. So many different ways that idolatry takes form in our lives for our neighbors, but not just our neighbors, for ourselves too. As Christians, we always have to be watching out for idolatry and battling idolatry. So our, their hearts are captivated, and I mean that with a double meaning. You know, that they, they love these idols, they're captivated in that sense, but they're also captured by these idols. They're oppressed by them, they're imprisoned by these, these false gods and these false values. Idols are anything that take the place of God in your life. That's a way to think about it. doesn't need to be some physical thing, but whatever is taking the place of God in your life, that's an idol to you because God deserves top spot. 
some ways to think about, to identify maybe idols that might be in your life. Um, yeah, what do you sacrifice to? We saw a altar to Zeus where they would make sacrifices to him. Maybe you're not sacrificing an animal, but what about, what about your money, your time, your family, your devotion, your priorities? People make sacrifices to things all the time. Another question you can ask yourself, you know, as you really think about this is, what would devastate you if you didn't have it? What would be something that if you lost it, you would be absolutely devastated? And that could indicate that that thing has become an idol for you. It could even be a good thing. These idols are not necessarily things that would have to be sin, but they can be good things that take the place of God. That you're finding your ultimate happiness in this, so that if it was lost, that you're just devastated. Or you're seeking after it and you think, if I never get this one thing that I want, I'm going to be devastated. You know, your career, your family, whatever it is, uh, this position. Tim Keller writes about this. He says, quote, A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotion, your financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship or peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances your beauty or your brains, or a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's, we may call it codependency, but really it is idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. What takes the place of God in the, in the totem pole of your heart? As you stack up your priorities of what's most important, what is anything that is above God is an idol in our lives. And idols rob God of his glory, and idols are empty and they cannot satisfy. Last, I want to talk a little bit, we'll be talking about this more in the weeks come to, this theme of evangelism. Uh, Paul fervently wanted them to know the true God because we're going to be looking at the message that he actually has, but let's not miss the part of why he's bringing this message to them to begin with. Why is he spending his time doing this? Why is he facing rejection to do this? It's because uh, he had a heart uh, value, a heart concern for them that they would know the true God, that they would come to know Jesus Christ for their salvation and for the glory of God as well. So keep reading here. It says in verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So they brought him to the Areopagus, which... Again, that's that, uh, that hill, uh, the rock of Ares. Now, here's the thing, though. 
it also became known for the city council that met there. And in Paul's day, most of the time, they actually met in a different building that was down in the Agora. So it all depends when it says the Areopagus, is it talking about the hill or is it talking about the council? Because they were both called the Areopagus. And we can't really know for sure. Uh, now, they still sometimes um, met up there for murder trials, and maybe they brought him up there as an informal place where a lot of people could gather and hear him. Um, I'll admit, I kind of like thinking that it was there. Uh, but it could have been at this other building as well, and especially if it was before the council. If you have a Bible that says they brought him to the council of the Areopagus, uh, that translation is actually doing a little bit of interpreting because in the Greek it just says they brought him to the Areopagus, and it doesn't tell us if it's the hill or the council. But either way, they're calling him in. You know, he got their attention, and they wanted to hear more about this. You know, this is good. You know, and when you get a chance to continue that conversation with Christ, you need to take that. I mean, so many times that's our goal in, uh, in evangelism is to try to get an, another set of downs. And if you think about it in football terms, I know that's all starting up. Uh, you know, so often it's not just a matter of uh, just, you know, throwing the bomb and in one play you got them saved. But it's keeping their hearing and working them down the field. And when that happens, don't lose that momentum. And let's try not to screw it up with something where we, uh, there's a turnover because we blew it or we didn't, take we didn't take advantage of it. So if you're a football fan and you're watching football, the next time your team just blows an opportunity, may you think, may I not blow this opportunity when I have someone that I can talk to about Jesus Christ. May we be ready and prepared to do that. So they brought him, they wanted to hear more. Don't waste the teachable moment. Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's where we're going to leave off for today. Of course, you can read ahead. You know, the Athenians, it says, you know, they were always, they're after the latest thing, the new thing. And a lot of people in our world, they want that. You know, what, that was a week old? Oh, man, we have to move on to the next thing. Can't believe that's so outdated. Um, we have something better than just the, the new thing. We have true and old. And our job, uh, my job as a pastor, and your job as somebody that's bringing the gospel, is not to invent some new thing. It's to tell them what is true and what is old and what has stood the test of time because this is God's word that doesn't change. And if it's new and it's always changing, you can't base your life on that. But God's message remains and remains the same. Salvation is the same for us as it was for the people in Paul's day. It's by Christ alone, it's by grace alone, and it's received through faith alone. And that's what we're telling people. A few things right at the end here that we can think about as we continue to think about evangelism. Paul cared about bringing the gospel to the lost. We need to ask ourselves, do we? This is what our mission is supposed to be about as our church. Yeah, we love to get together. We want to have fellowship, support each other. That is important. But we are also called to bring Jesus Christ to those that need Jesus Christ. And whether it's people on the other side of the world or people that are in our mission field, your mission field, the people that you come in contact with, and so we need to have the same heart attitude 
we need to make sure that we don't lose this ever as a church, caring about this concern about helping people come to know Jesus Christ, because they don't have another hope. There's not 57 different options for how you get to heaven. But we have what God has revealed as this is the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we want people to have what we have been given. We didn't deserve it. They don't deserve it, but we want everyone to have it. A few things that we've seen already. Think about how this would apply to us as a church, maybe to you individually. He went to them. He didn't just wait to them. Well, if they want to know about God, you know, they can... uh, look up something on the internet or they can find their way to church. Yeah, they can. And they should. But let them, they're not going to. We need to go to them. And he went to where they were, went to the synagogues, went to the marketplace. And how can we as a church and as individuals do a better job going to unbelievers to connect with them about Jesus Christ? And he reasoned with them. He didn't rage at them but he tried to persuade them. He tried to convince them. He tried to implore them to come to Christ. And these are things that we need to learn to do better and better. He was persistent with them. Notice it said he did this every day. And and that doesn't necessarily mean you need to be doing the same thing absolutely every day, but in your going, you know, you're at work, you're in the community, you're with, home with uh, your kids that need to know the Lord, uh, you're with relatives. There's different ways that we need to be looking for opportunities um, and taking the initiative to, to bring things up to help people come to Christ. You know, we need wisdom so we don't, you know, uh, just blow our opportunity by coming at them too hard, too quick. But how can we keep their ear? How can we keep, you know, in football working them down the field? so that eventually they, they cross the line and uh, embrace Jesus Christ for themselves as their Lord and Savior. And it takes time. So don't give up. I know some of you have people in your life that you've been praying for for years and years and years. And there's also stories here of people that have been prayed for for years and years, sometimes decades, and then came to Christ. So you do not know that your efforts are in vain. And no matter what, God is glorified in the process. But keep working, keep being persistent. He went to more than one kind of person. He went to the Jews. He went to the people in the marketplace. And maybe had different approaches. uh, What's going to fit each one best. Uh, But there's probably different types of people in your life. And don't just zero in on one person so much that you forget about everyone else. You know, keep your eyes open to other people that you could impact as well too. And he took advantage of the teachable moments. We want people to have the same joy in Jesus Christ that we have. In idols, they can't do it. They rob God of his glory. They're empty. They cannot satisfy. False worldviews are going to be empty to you as well. But Jesus Christ is eternal. And Jesus Christ satisfies forever. I hope that you have Jesus Christ in that place in your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this message that you have for us in the book of Acts, where these things are accounted for us. Lord, let us learn lessons from them. Lord, may we recognize idols that are in our lives and turn from them. And may we have nothing in our life that is more important to us than Jesus Christ. 
And if we do have Jesus Christ in that place, then we can realize that he does bring satisfaction and that we will never be in a position where we are so distraught because we have lost the one thing that matters most. Because once you have Jesus Christ in your life, the truth is he has us and will never let us go. And we have security in him, identity in him. And Lord, let us be so filled with gratitude and love and thankfulness for that, that it motivates us to bring that message to those around us. Lord, help us all right now think of people in our lives that need Jesus and how can we bring this message to them. Let us be persistent. Let us depend on you, Lord God. But use us individually and as a church as your instruments. Lord, I pray for anyone here that is captivated by idols, that doesn't know you yet. May you turn their heart. May they turn to you, Lord God, uh, turning to you and embrace you, Jesus Christ, as their Lord, their Savior, the one that died on the cross for them, that can forgive them and fill their life with meaning forever and ever. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.